This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. Well, we're beginning a new message series this morning called The Call of Christmas, and I'm excited about this. It's going to take place over the next couple of weeks, leading right up to our, our final service for the year on December the 18th. And so, I want to encourage you to be tracking along. Um, interestingly enough, this video shows John the Baptist's father, Zachariah Priest, who um, was of the division of Abijah. And you think to yourself, what in the world does that name have anything to do with anything? Well, thank you for asking. I'm going to explain it to you. Interestingly enough, every single priest that was divided was divided into 24 different divisions of priests. I'm going to do some Bible history today, if that's all right. We're going to track through the story and give you some nuggets of truth regarding the actual Christmas story and some of the history and some of the cultural norms of the day. Um, And Zechariah came from one of the 24 divisions called Abijah. Interestingly enough, that name comes from the word Ab, which is literally taking from the word Abba, which we would know to mean father. That word I literally comes from the word is or of. And the last part, Yah, literally comes from that word Yod, which is literally Yahweh. So he literally is saying that Zechariah came from the division that God is Father. That Yahweh is Father. If I can say this morning, when we work from the perspective that God is your Father, everything else changes. How many have ever grown up in a religious environment, in a religious context, and the only thing that you understood was God as an upset, mean, angry God that was looking out for you every single time you messed up. Right? How many understood that what it did is it produced something in us. It produced a, a, an anxiety even towards the way that we relate to God. And when we came literally eight plus years ago, on the very first Sunday morning that we opened this church, on Sunday, September the 7th, 2008, we literally started by saying, Jesus came not to start a religion, but to have relationship. Unfortunately, with Christmas, as well as Easter, we've made it so religious. We've, said, we've made it uh, in such a way that, that we relate to it as duty, as obligation, as form, as fashion. But God is calling us to relationship. I don't believe it's a coincidence that, a coincidence that Zechariah, who came from the division that literally means God or Yahweh is our Father, had an angelic visitation. When we understand God as Father the doors become open to every experience you can possibly experience. Amen? How many want that kind of experience? How many would love to have an angelic visitation like that? Right? I don't know about you, but I'm a little jealous of some of these people in the Bible who had these encounters with God. But then I've been reminded, even as I've gotten older and as I've processed through different things, God still does some amazing things today. I think we're so busy we don't see them. They're all around us. Amen? God works regularly through ordinary people doing ordinary things. We've got this mindset that, you know, God's going to call us to the mission field. And when we're on the mission field, then God's going to do supernatural things. No, God can do supernatural things. I know it's going to be hard to imagine, but even at Starbucks. Even with their $17 coffees. God can still work through a place like Starbucks. It's incredible what he can do over there. But from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is full of stories of divine encounters with humanity. Not just God encounters, but angelic encounters. 
And interestingly enough, if you actually Google search this phrase, angel encounters, it produces over 1.8 million results in literally one second. Historical reviews of virtually every nation have seen a pattern of stories, even right down to artwork, depicting encounters with angelic beings. Egyptians built tombs with ornate and extravagant furnishings because they believed that if they did that, and if they created a, a, a temple that was worthy, they believed that there would be an angelic visitation. Obviously, they have a different term for it, but it was basically that's what they were believing for. Islamic scholars suggested each person on earth is literally assigned two angels, one to keep track of all the good things you do, and one to keep track of all the bad things you do. Right. Kind of sounds like some songs we sing at Christmas, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, checking who's naughty or nice, right? So there's angels checking every Islam to see if they're naughty or nice. Just so you know. Angels are prominent throughout all of history. They're prominent in films and television today. They're prominent through so many things. I remember a number of years ago, it was about five or six years ago, when we were still having services in the Cineplex, I remember coming in one day, it was on this, very early on the Sunday morning, and I was going back and forth between the, the theater on the far end where we were in theater number 10, going all the way back to the other side to get all the storage bins. And as I was walking from the storage bin area all the way to the other side of the Cineplex, I started taking notice of the movies that were playing in the theater. Ten, ten movies playing in that theater... And as I was walking by, I started counting. One, two, three, four, five, six. And guess what I got to? I got to nine out of ten theaters were playing something about the supernatural. Listen, Hollywood is even into this stuff. They love this stuff. They don't have answers for it, but they love this stuff. We have a culture that is absolutely enraptured with the supernatural. They're just looking for the wrong things. But Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it literally says this, Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without even realizing it. Some have entertained angels without even realizing it. I remember when I first met Sandra, she actually shared a story of one late night when she had been doing some ministry opportunities, and she had this old 1975 Mercedes box. It was huge. It weighed 1.8 bazillion pounds. And it had no power steering. No power anything. Can you imagine a 1975 Mercedes big box car and she was stuck between two vehicles and had to parallel, had to get out of a parallel park between two vehicles of which she did not have a lot of space. So can you just imagine for a second the amount of work that you'd have to move to keep going back the other way and you'd literally go five inches each time. She stopped one moment, she put her hands up on the steering wheel and she was absolutely exhausted, overwhelmed, had her window down, and out of the corner of her eye, she sees this gentleman come up beside the van, or beside the car. And she looks up. It's like, oh, hello. And with this soft, gentle voice, he said, it's okay. I'll take care of it. He grabs the steering wheel, and he starts going with the steering wheel. He goes back. He gets her out of there in no time. She gets out from around the two cars that are parked, and she looks back where the guy was just standing, and he was gone. Looks in the rearview mirror, gets out, looks around, he was gone. And I thought to myself, if an angelic presence, God sends an angel to help Sandra because she had to get out of a bad parallel park with a 1975 Mercedes with absolutely no power steering. If God cares that much for her, how much more does he care for every other need of every other person on the face of the planet? 
I thought it was appropriate today, and, and Rachel and I didn't talk, but she picked the songs this week not knowing what I was speaking about, um, and picked Angels We Have Heard on High as our Christmas song. Found that ironic. But in his book, Angels, God's Secret Agents by Billy Graham, he literally says this, I believe in angels because the Bible says they're angels. And I believe the Bible to be the true word of God. Sometimes we have to dumb it down just to that. Can we absolutely get, be so confident and so incredibly uh, simple that we can dumb down the very simplicity of the gospel down to, if God said it, it's good enough for me. I've actually got written in the beginning of my Bible, in the very front of my Bible, I literally said this, if God's word says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Can we have that kind of faith? Can we have that kind of trust? Can we have that kind of hope in our heart that God wants to speak to us? He goes on in that book and he says this, the Bible testifies that God has provided assistance for us in our spiritual conflicts. In nearly 300 different places, angels encountered God. It also teaches us that God has countless angels at his command. Proof of that is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, where it literally says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? They're here to serve you. They're here to minister to you. Zachariah experienced an incredible angelic visitation in a moment when he least expected it. He was simply doing his job. He was going about his daily, ordinary life. How many want an extraordinary experience with God in the midst of your ordinary life? Right? How many want it this Christmas? How many want that same thing for someone you love dearly who doesn't know Christ? I'm telling you, I believe we're in a season right now. I want to challenge you guys as a church. Let's bring every, somebody every Sunday for, this whole, I mean, for the rest of our lives. But specifically for this series, I believe we're going to literally present the gospel over these next four weeks that are going to be so simple, so easy, so, so relatable, so, so understandable that God wants to take people from a place of hearing about Him to knowing Him personally. Do you believe that this morning? So while he was doing his job, he literally received a call from an angelic being. The call of Christmas is the theme for this series. And he literally received a call to prepare. The very first call in any call with God is a call to prepare. How many love preparation season? One of you. That's awesome. Most of us, most of us say, it's time to prepare. We go, no, we want the time of the promise. Right? We want the promise here now. God says, step one, prepare. What does prepare mean? Literally means this to make ready for use, to put in a proper state of mind, to get ready. How many are ready? How many are ready for the people God wants to send you? How many are ready for the things that God wants to literally? Uh, land on your lap this morning. That's what God wants to do. We're going to read the story in, about Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, and we're just going to track along together. I'm going to share some thoughts and some insights about this concept of preparation, and, and then we're going to pray and end and have lots of food this afternoon. That's awesome. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, it says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who were uh, from the first were eyewitnesses, and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. If you understand Bible history, Bible knowledge, and some of the studies around Bible history, 
you'll understand that Luke was a very different, uh, different person when it came to the writings that he had in the Scripture. He wrote on a whole other level. He was a doctor. He was very educated. He was very well respected. But he also wanted to prove something. And so he wrote in such a way at the beginning that was very formal. Why? Because of the audience he was writing to. If you understand Bible history and you look into it, all four Gospels were written about a particular theme to a different group of people. So they were trying to convince a particular group of people of a specific principle. So Luke actually wrote to the Gentile nations, more specifically to the Greeks. He was writing to the Greeks, and so what was he doing? He was trying to, uh, to begin in a formal way to establish the fact that this was a credible, well-researched, well-documented thought that you have to take seriously. N.T. Wright, one of the Christian scholars, said this. He says, Luke opens his gospel with a long, formal sentence like a huge stone entrance welcoming you impressingly to a large building. Here he is saying is something solid, something you can trust. Readers would know that they are beginning with a serious, well-researched piece of work. This wasn't a fly-by-night or casual account. It would hold up, uh, it would hold its head up in the world at large. Interestingly enough, if you compare some of the different works of Luke and the way he wrote, and the Hebrew historian, the Hebrew scholar that was not a Christian by the name of Josephus, you'll actually see that their writings were very similar. The way that they handled certain texts and the way that they described certain things were actually very, very similar. Why? Because they came at it from a scholarly point of view. The educated of the day and the educated of society would understand that what Luke is setting them up for is a well-documented proof of Jesus' life. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there was somebody that was famous in culture and they were known as storytellers. How many know that when you live in a day and age without social media, without email, without television, without 24-hour news stations, and no, we, no means to get your information out quickly, then the only way that you can do that is by word of mouth. But in every culture, usually in the Old Testament days and in the New Testament days, specifically in Hebrew culture, there was always somebody who was famous for being the storyteller. How many have ever sat in a living room with 12 people and you always know that you always gravitate towards one or two people that are the storytellers? How many know that I have that, I used to say gift? Um, that's not a gift. I have the ability to speak. A lot. And I keep going. And, and some people check out after about five minutes. Sometimes it's about five hours. But man, I have fun. But if I were to actually put myself into the New Testament days when Jesus was around or just after, I would probably most likely be the storyteller of the day. I want to explain to you the significance of who a storyteller was back in those days. Uh, their role in giving credibility to any story was huge. And I'm going to explain to you how this worked. They literally were the primary oral communicators of the day. If an event happened, so for example, an earthquake uh, uh, maybe a royal visit from a, from a, a royal from another place, maybe a death, maybe something that was going on, uh, you know, maybe somebody unfriended someone on Facebook, this would be the storyteller that would, t- I'm kidding, that would tell the story. The story would quickly spread all across that known territory, and here's what would happen. They would always agree upon a certain form or a certain story, and then the storyteller would get up and tell it. But once the story was set in stone, 
No one could modify it because everyone knew the story. Right? If a storyteller went off script, somebody in the crowd or maybe a number of people in the crowd would automatically interrupt and intervene and say, whoa, whoa, that's not how it goes. I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to give you proof of this. Are you ready for this one? Are you guys ready? Are you ready? Are you on your toes? Are you ready to go? Okay. "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring except for a mouse." Oh, okay, you caught it, right? So there you go. It says, not even a mouse. Why? Because in Luke's day, everyone understood that the story by the official storyteller was everything. So there was no concept or no, no idea that would fight against what Luke was saying. Interestingly enough, Luke not only wrote the book of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And Luke wrote the beginning of the book of Acts to the same guy, Theophilus, with the same formal beginning and the same context with the same wording. Why? Because he was saying again, what I'm about to say is documented, it's proven, all the storytellers are telling the same thing. Why was this important? Because of who he was speaking to? Yeah. Why was he important as well? Because he was trying to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's divine encounters that can happen, and I'm proving it. Right here. Interestingly enough, not only does the book of Luke in chapter 1 start with a formal greeting and then an angelic visitation, the book of Acts starts with a formal greeting and an angelic visitation. Interestingly, angels were credible, real, tangible events to that generation. They understood it. I remember, um, I know my son Josiah, he's out helping with the kids this morning, but when Josiah was a bit younger, on, I can't even count how many different occasions, at least six or seven times, where he literally saw angels and could describe them to a T. He saw them. He actually saw one on top of my car, and I said, was I driving slow enough? (laughs) You know, did he stay on? Is it okay? You know what I'm saying? But he says he saw one across the back of our couch overlooking our back window. He saw one sitting beside me when I was at church one day. He saw three over top of Sandra while she was leading worship one morning at church. And he could describe them with perfect clarity. He described even their eyes. He said they were blue, like so piercing blue, just like mamas. I remember he said that. Just like mamas. Angels are real. Angels are real. Amen? Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, it says this. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, or Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. We've already explained that. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot. Uh, Basically, like flipping a coin. According to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. This story introduces us to an incredibly faithful couple. Not only were they faithful in their walk uh, as a husband and wife, but faithful in their devotion and their service for God. They were an example, not just in their spiritual life, but in their married life, in their personal life. Um, But there was also a deep sadness in their heart. They knew they couldn't have what they always wanted, which was to have children. And for those that know the history, back in those days, women found incredible significance in a place in their life by not only being married, but having children. That was their role. And obviously, 
That isn't the same way today at all. Um, and uh, we're excited by that, by the changes of that. But in that culture, that's how it was. They were past the days of childbearing. Nevertheless, they continued to pray. So I want to I give you a little bit of historical uh, documentation or thoughts around what a priest actually did and how they determined certain things. So back in those days, every priest under every tw- uh, all the 24 divisions that served in the temple would literally serve 50 weeks out of the year in their own home uh, location, their own home temple or synagogue. That's where they would serve. And then for two weeks out of the year, they would be sent to Jerusalem uh, to, uh, to serve at the temple in Jerusalem. Part of it was because they had to take turns and cover the, the priestly duties in the temple. The other thing was that it was a way to train them about some of the ways that they did not practice or process through while they were in their own local synagogue. Um, one of the interesting things was one of the priestly duties was to burn incense at the altar inside the Holy of Holies. There were three different areas in the temple. There was the outer courts where everyone could go, the inner courts, and then the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt, and only a priest could come in there once a year to do what they were going to do. And interestingly enough, Zechariah was selected for an opportunity of a lifetime. We go on with the story. Verse 11, it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. For he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. I pray that over the Mortimer little baby right now. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Kicking in the womb. Just filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? He will bring back many of the people of Israel to to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then Zechariah asked the angel, verse 18, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Then the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day that this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Think about the place that Zechariah would have been in in that moment. Sometimes we read the, the, the stories, and we read them like it's a book, but we never put ourselves in there. Think about yourself in the midst of your little quiet room and you're playing Amanda Cook's You Make Me Brave. And you're listening to the song over and over and over again. And out of the midst of that moment comes an angelic visitation that literally knocks you to your knees. What would you do? How would you feel? What would be the emotions or the thoughts going through your mind? How would you respond to that voice? How would you respond to what was going on? Interestingly enough, the angel that was speaking's name was Gabriel. And for those that know, he was actually mentioned in four different occasions in the Bible. Twice in the book of Daniel, twice in the book of Luke. Both revealing himself and giving a message of hope and peace to people. Interestingly enough, the word Gabriel literally means God is my strength. Whenever you're in that place of worship, and God's your Father. That's the perspective you're coming from. God is my Father. In the midst of that, you're going to hear a voice that will bring strength. A voice that will bring hope. A voice that will bring perspective. A voice that will bring peace. 
in the midst of those moments. And Gabriel's call to Zechariah was very simple. Prepare the way. Prepare it. I have a question for you. How in the world can he prepare the way if he can't tell anyone anything? I wanted to let you know, because some of you may have never known this before, but this was the first and beginning time when the game called charades was invented. So, so Zachariah, no, 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 follow with me for a second. Zachariah leaves the temple, comes out, and they're looking at him, and he's like, mm, mm. It's like, okay, okay, okay. I remember this vision. God gave me this vision. It was like, it was like charades, and I was acting out. Okay, 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 ready? Okay, 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 got it. And this is what happens. The first ever game of charades happened in the Bible in Luke chapter 1. If you don't believe me, look it up in the Cameron paraphrase. It's right there. He said, and he picked it up, the game called charades, and then they just flowed, and then the game went on for about eight and a half months. And then as it was approaching the ninth month, He went from charades to Pictionary. (laughs) And he grabbed a little stencil and a little thing and he started writing everything for him. And then right at the very moment where they were getting sick and tired of the game called charades, and then then they just started their own mannequin challenge. (laughs) And he said, his name is John. I'm convinced that the only way to prepare is for us to be silent. Silence allows God to speak. And when we act out what we are feeling, we're actually acting out in our game called charades what God is actually speaking to us, not what we think. Because we can't put our own spin on what God is saying if we just do the game of charades. You either get the answer or you don't. Prophetic message always leads to preparation. Preparation always leads to the promise. Luke 1, 21 and 22, it says this. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. He realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. goes on in verse 23. It says, When his time of service had, was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant for five months, remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Huh. She was a disgrace in her own mind because she couldn't have kids. The very thing that she felt called, the very purpose that she felt called to, she couldn't live out. Why does God call us to prepare? Why did God call Zachariah to prepare? Why is he getting us to prepare? 
It's very simple. If God doesn't prepare your heart, then you're going to filter the promise of God through your own experiences. But God wants to prepare your heart so you filter the very purpose and plan of God for your life through His voice and His voice alone. As a Christian community, we have far too many filters. Far too many filters. We filter everything through experience, through this, that, the other thing. God is saying, is my word enough? Is my word going to give you strength? N.T. Wright says this, the story is about much more than Zachariah's joy of having a son at last, or Elizabeth's exaltation of being freed from the scorn of the mothers in the village. It is about the great fulfillment of God's promises and purposes. But the needs, the hopes, and the fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in this larger story, precisely because of who Israel's God is, the God of lavish, self-giving love. When God acts on the large scale, He takes care of smaller human concerns as well. Prepare our hearts for the coming of the Savior. I know it's going to sound in some ways kind of silly, but it really makes its point. If we got an announcement today that Queen Elizabeth was coming to our church next Sunday, would we do anything different? Yeah, yeah and some, yeah, and those that said, no, 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 I don't know, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I think we would, uh, we would definitely have to be trained in etiquette. We'd have to be trained in how to receive the Queen as she comes in. We'd have to be trained how to Bow, how to curtsy, how to do all of those things. We definitely would have to be trained on how to eat properly with the 59 forks and spoons and knives that are all placed out upon our table. We'd have to learn that. But our heart attitude would be different. We would reverence her. We would honor her. Not because she's necessarily done everything in her life that to, to be honored by, but we honor her because of the place and the position she has. When God comes and says, prepare your hearts, he just wasn't saying prepare your hearts for a baby. He was saying prepare your hearts to receive the gift that I'm bringing. Prepare your hearts to receive the gift. How many have ever given something that you have invested in or something that you've spent a lot of time thinking through and planning and thinking of this incredible gift that would bless this person? They open it up, they push it aside, they move on to the next one as quick as you can say your own name. Some of us are still bitter and need healing over an event from last Christmas, and we'll have prayer after for all of you. But the point is, is that that's exactly how it is with God. God says, prepare your hearts. Why? To receive what, the gift that I'm bringing. Receive the gift that I'm bringing. And sometimes this is what we do. We look in it and go, eh, push it aside. I'm sure there's something better. Listen to Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. It says, the prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice. Shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And I love this version because it doesn't stop there. It goes on with this last phrase and it says this, clear the road for him. Clear the road. What have we cluttered up our road with that Jesus can't walk down? We got to get rid of some of that stuff. Amen. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9. I'm going to skip one verse. I'm going to end with this thought this morning. It says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. No mind 
could absolutely comprehend, one version says. No mind could comprehend it. Why? Because He loves you. He is for you. He believes in you. He is standing with you. And His heart is that we would literally make a decision to say, God, I'm going to prepare my heart for a divine encounter with you. Sometimes we have these mixed up ideas. And I can tell you for one, I've had this idea that you know, if we just go to a conference, if we just have a guest speaker, if we just have an encounter retreat, then God can show up and speak to me and I'm going to be absolutely mind blown. Do you know what? That God can speak to you anywhere. God can get your attention anywhere. God can meet you in any place with anybody at any time right now. It's not about can he. It's about can we. Can we be prepared? Can we prepare our hearts? Can we declutter our soul so much so that we can hear the voice of God? Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com.